Good morning. Good to see everybody. Glad some of us are still in town. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Sean, and I also get to welcome you as one of the pastors here. Just want to say thanks for being with us Sunday after Thanksgiving. Glad you're in town. Glad you're here to worship. One thing I do need you to know right now um, for, for Christmas is that um, in just under a month uh, is December 24th. Holy cow. Under a month. Tw- December 24th is a Sunday, Christmas Eve. We're going to all be together. All of Frontline Church, all four of our congregations are going to be gathering together at the Civic Center downtown. And we're going to have three services. That's going to be 11 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and 5 o'clock. And it is going to be an absolute blast. We did this last year. And it's just a citywide Christmas, like, blowout, man. We just invite the city, invite your friends, invite your family. That's going to be a really fun time. So just know, on that Sunday, we'll not be gathering here. We will be all together at the Civic Center. Sound fun? Sound good? All right. Um, Well, here's what we're going to do. Next week, we're starting a sermon series that's actually going to take us through that longing and that waiting, uh, the coming of Christ. But here's what we're going to do today. Um, We're going to finish 1 John um, Andrew's going to come in just a moment. So here's what I want to invite you to do. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 5, and we are wrapping this thing up today. So let me read uh, from the text, and you can follow along either in your own Bible or on screen. This is, this is the word of the Lord. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it then that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jump to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Doing okay? There we are. It's great to see you. Hey, thanks for coming to church after having kind of a a turkey hangover. I appreciate that. Hope that your Thanksgiving was really, really great. Um, Let me say this. If you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, do I belong here? Is this for me? Maybe you're burned by the church and you've got some church hurt. I just want to say you really do belong here and we're glad you're with us. If you have questions and you'd want to dialogue about some of the claims that Jesus made over coffee or over a beer, we'd love to do that. Just email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com and we'll set up a time to, to chat and hang out. So thanks for being with, with us this morning. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us. Take a second and pray. And, and then I want to ask that God would take all of this truth that we just read and the truth that's been unpacked in this book and he would do something with it in our hearts that I can't do. So let me pray for us and we'll get after it. Jesus, we want to thank you that you are the one by the power of the Spirit that causes dead hearts to come to life. And you are the one by the power of the Spirit that can really bring change 
in the heart of the person that feels hopeless this morning. We, we want to thank you, God, that you are, as we've been singing about and talking about all morning, you are drifting towards us. When we run from you, when we rebel, when we sin, you are drifting towards us. And so we just stand in awe of your love. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is going crazy. Have you noticed? Uh, I recently read something by one of, one of the guys that I really love and respect. He's an author, and he does a lot of ethical thinking and writing. A guy named Russell Moore, he tweeted this, and I thought it summed up 2017 really well. He said, y'all know I'm not much for conspiracy theories, but I would take seriously if someone is pouring LSD into the world's water systems claim right about now. And I read that and thought, that is 2017 in a tweet. Uh, feels like the world that you and I are living in is completely going mad. Let me just list off a few things to remind you. Uh, we have terrorist attacks left and right. Feels like inundating our news feed. Deadly hurricanes that are history record-breaking hurricanes. Mass shootings. There are 58 people killed in Las Vegas not long ago. 26 people killed at a church in Texas, that's about half of the congregation that was killed. There's alt-right rallies. There's racial tensions. The likes that we haven't seen since like 1960. And then there's just general political polarization in our world where you're getting pushed really hard to the left or really hard to the right. And Mark Sayers, one of my favorite authors in a book called Strange Days, summed this reality up well. He says, daily... We're faced with a barrage of mad, bad, and confusing news. A constant stream of visceral video delivered to our screens. An ISIS operative exploding at a Belgium airport. The victims of a police shooting bleeding to death live on Facebook. The president of Turkey, mid-coup, asserting his power via FaceTime. Images of an aid worker picking up the body of a Syrian toddler washed up on a resort beach. Warning, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing is becoming the tagline of our moment. By the way, this isn't to mention all of the recent sexual harassment scandals that have been coming out. Guys like Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Jeremy Piven, Jeffrey Tambor, Roy Moore, Al Franken, Louis, Louis C.K., just to name a few of the names. We could go on and on and on of all the men recently that have been exposed uh, for just horrifically evil sexual harassment and scandal. Uh, Trevin Wax, he's, a, he's a, another guy that said something that I thought, that, that really sums it up. He said, right, left, conservative, liberal, religious, secular, doesn't matter. God is unmasking our hypocrisy and our evil all over the place, and it hurts. Have you sensed this? The world is going crazy. By the way, evangelicalism isn't really faring much better in all of this. It's not like the church is, is isolated from all of this baggage and brokenness. That the way the non-Christian world uh, sees Christians in the U.S., specifically kind of the evangelical church, whatever that might mean now, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, but the way the non-Christian world sees us is really um, just... Their number one desire, if you talk to a non-Christian, they'll say, yeah, your number one desire is Christians. It's not to follow Jesus. It's to maintain political power and to have a seat at the table. Uh, Beth Moore, she said this. It's been a harrowing trip to Oz for many evangelicals this year. 
The curtain pulled back on the Wizard of Cause. We found a Bible, all right, seemingly used instead of applied, leveraged instead of obeyed, cut and pasted, piecemeal into a pledge of allegiance to serve the served. And then one more quote for you just to kind of summarize all of what's being said. Grant Castleberry, he said, evangelicalism as we know it is on its deathbed, dying the death of a thousand heresies and moral hypocrisies. Good morning, so glad you came today, right? Thanks for coming to church. Does this feel like the world we live in to you? Because it feels like the world we live in to me a little bit. And the number one question that I'm starting to ask myself over and over and over again is what does it really truly mean to be a Christian in 2017? What does it really mean to follow Jesus in this particular cultural moment? Because so much of what we thought Christianity was and what we thought evangelicalism was and how we thought the world was going, it's just not going the way that we thought. How do we live in, in the way of Jesus today in this culture that seems just chaotic and confusing and really, really hard to navigate? We live in a culture of anxiety and upheaval and extremes left and right. And the question is, how do we follow Jesus in this? Mark Sayers, again, posing this question well. He says, how do we view this pivotal moment in global history through biblical lenses? How can we be light on a hill as darkness seems to fall? What is it to live a life in the spirit in a moment of anxiety, upheaval, and extremes? And that's why I'm really grateful for 1 John. Because what John does in this letter is it's, It's his answer in the middle of chaos and confusion to a group of Christians that are struggling and don't really know the way forward. And and I couldn't think of a better book that provides answers to some of these questions than what's in 1 John. There are so many similarities between our culture today and the culture of the people receiving this letter 2,000 years ago in the first century. So think about it. For them, the Romans, this empire that was, is very antagonistic against Christianity, was bearing down on them and oppressing them left and right. So as Christians, it was very hard to, to know how to live when your government was bearing down and pressing you out. In addition, they were getting pushed and marginalized to the edges of society. They weren't allowed to have a seat at the table. Their voice wasn't heard in the public square. So to be a Christian in in that culture was very, very difficult to navigate. In addition to that, heresy was breaking out in the church. So it wasn't just chaos out there. The chaos was inside of the church as well. And, And false teaching was rampant. And then you had a great majority of people that were just disillusioned with Christianity, walking away from the faith. And the few Christians that were left, they were just confused and they didn't know how to go forward. And their primary concern was, how do we even know that we're really Christians ourselves? How do we even know that all of this stuff is real? How can we have assurance ourselves. And it's in the middle of that chaos and that confusion that the Apostle John in his 90s, he writes this letter to the church to encourage them and to give them assurance and to help them see the way forward. And this is one of the most prophetically helpful books for our culture today so that you and I can have a way forward. So here's what I want to do. Rather than just uh, preaching my way through chapter five, which is where we are in our series, this is our last week in this book, rather than just preaching my way through chapter five, I want to do something different today. Chapter five is basically like the last few seconds of a phone conversation of someone that you're about to see face to face. John isn't really following a coherent thought. He's just like, here's a few random thoughts. I'll see you in just a minute. 
because he was headed their way to see them in person. And so it's kind of like we get the, the half part of the conversation. And what he does in chapter five is he takes all these things that he's been hitting throughout the book and he restates them and he resays them in different ways. He's trying to get this weighty truth of the love of God to sink deeply into their hearts. And that, in fact, is what this whole book is about. This whole book is about the love of God. It's crazy that John mentions love 44 times in this book alone. And so here's what I want to do. Rather than just walking you through this chapter and unpacking what this chapter means, what I want to do is give you a closing kind of survey of this whole book and try to help you see the way forward and some hopes that I have for us as a church because my biggest fear is that you and I are just going to blow past this series and all the weighty stuff that John has said, we won't process it, we won't weigh, it won't weigh heavy on our soul, we won't do anything with what we've heard. And one of the scariest things that can happen to Christians in Oklahoma is to constantly learn new stuff but not actually apply the stuff that we know. So I'm creating space for us today to press pause and to slow down and to really wrestle with what this book tells us and what it means for the way that we live in this chaotic world. Does that sound okay? Even if it doesn't, I'm gonna do it because I got the mic. So here we go. Uh, two truths, I wanna give you two truths uh, that are really kind of summarized in this book and really in the Bible itself. And then I wanna give you some hopes that I have for us as a church. So here's the first truth. Christianity is all about being changed by the love of God. Christianity is all about being changed by the love of God. That is one of the primary things that John has been writing about. It's the love of God. I was talking to my barber recently, and she said, yeah, I left the church because there's just really, like, I, I, I realized that over and over I was going to church to have the pastor tell me that I was going to hell. And I just got sick of that, and I knew there was sin in my life. I knew that I wasn't a very good person, and, and I knew that I couldn't measure up to the type of person that he was describing. So I just got disillusioned, and I left. And in talking to her, I realized that her entire approach to Christianity is essentially, if you do enough good, God will love you and he'll accept you and he'll really forgive you. But if you fail and if you sin and if you don't do good, then sorry, you're out of luck. When you die, you'll probably go to hell. And so she just got frustrated with this and she gave up on Christianity, not because of what Christianity really taught, but because of her false assumptions of what it was all about. And I just wanna say this, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I wanna be as clear as I can that this story, the story of the Bible, the story of 1 John, and all of Christianity has nothing to do with your morality and your ability to clean yourself up and turn over a new leaf and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do enough good so that maybe, just maybe, God will love you. That's not the point of Christianity whatsoever. In fact, this is a story not for good people. This is good news for really broken people. This is a, a story about God, the only good one, who comes for broken people like us, and though we've done nothing to earn or deserve it, he's chasing after us in the middle of our darkest sin. Look at what John says in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. This, this is uh, God orchestrating and starting something out. He is the one that initiated the pursuit of us. We're not flagging him down. His love is so great that he acted and sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Christianity is not about God crushing you. It's not about God killing you, robbing you of life. God wants to give you life. That's what this is a story about. Look at verse 10. 
In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the wrath bearer for our sins. This is not a story about God wanting to pour out his wrath on you. This is a story about God not wanting to pour out his wrath and instead sending Jesus to absorb that penalty for our sin in our place. That's radical, sacrificial love and mercy from our creator to you by grace. This is a story not about your love, your devotion, your commitment, your obedience. This is a story about God's love and commitment and his obedience on our behalf. But here's what happens. When that level of love collides into the human heart, it necessarily has to change the person. Slowly, yes, but it will change you from the inside out. You cannot receive the love of God and stay the same. In fact, over and over, and even in chapter five, John is gonna talk about this free and disruptive love as a new birth, right? It's like we're, we're alive for the first time. We're born again for the first time. Let me just read this by John Stott. Uh, the new birth is a supernatural event which takes us out of the sphere of the world where Satan rules and into the family of God. We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. The spell of the old life has been broken. The fascination of the world has lost its appeal. The new birth has the double result, listen to this, of detaching us from the world and attaching us to God. The result in each case is keeping God's commands. By the way, you can see this free and disruptive love, this theme throughout the entire Bible. You have Abraham, this pagan dude in the middle of the desert, not interested in God. He's actually worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. And in the middle of him not pursuing God, God sees him, comes to him, and says, I love you, and I choose you, and I'm gonna bless you, and I'm gonna make you a father of many nations. Through you, I'm gonna bless the whole world. And Abraham's like, what did I do to deserve this? You didn't do anything, man. You were just out in the desert worshiping other stuff when God found you. And the love of God entered his soul and changed his entire identity and destiny. This isn't just true of Abraham. This is true of the woman at the well in the New Testament. Her story is she had five broken marriages, five failed attempts at marriage. And eventually it's like the, the city kind of gave up on this gal. They're like, man, when are you gonna realize that a husband is not gonna satisfy the thirst that you have in, in your soul? The husband isn't gonna fill you. And here she is in shame at a well trying to hide from her community, not letting anybody see her sin. And Jesus shows up. And he loves her and he knows everything about her. And even though he exposed her sin, he came in and he said, I want to give you, you're so thirsty, I want to give you living water. And the woman told the whole city, you got to meet this guy. He knew everything about me and he still loved me. He's changed me. This is not just true of her, it's true of Zacchaeus, this guy who was getting rich off of kind of fleecing his own people. He was a Jewish man raising money for the Roman government so that the Roman government could keep oppressing the Jewish people. That's how much he loved money. And then yet Jesus sees this crowd of people and the one guy that he wants to talk to is the worst guy in the crowd, Zacchaeus. He says, come down out of the tree. I want to stay at your house today. Which that falls on deaf ears for us because of our culture today. That doesn't mean anything. But in the first century, if a Jewish man says to you, I want to stay at your house, what he's saying is, I want to be your friend. I want to know you. I want to, I want to have an intimate relationship with you. So here is Jesus saying, hey, you're the most busted up, broken guy in this crowd. I want to be your friend. I want to stay with you. I want to know you and I want you to know me. 
This is true of the woman who was caught in adultery. She was literally caught in the act of adultery. And the, the religious leaders, the church leaders brought her to the feet of Jesus and they said, well, the law says we should stone her. And Jesus said, well, whoever here doesn't have any sin can throw the first stone. And all, one by one, all of the people in the crowd started to leave. Jesus, the only one who could have thrown a stone, he doesn't. He gets down on his knees and he says, hey, where are your condemners? If they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And she does, she goes and she's changed. This is true of Saul. Saul's on his way to persecute and kill more Christians. He hates Jesus, wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with Jesus. And as this religious zealot, he's trying to snuff out the early church. And Jesus finds him and loves him and knocks him off of his horse. And Paul is changed and he, he, he becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. He's like radically in love with Jesus, totally changed. This is true of the Apostle John, the writer of this book. The Apostle John, he used to be this arrogant, proud guy that was enamored and obsessed with himself. And after years and years and years of following Jesus, he was changed by the love of God. From, he became, he, he used to be known as the, apostle, the, the, the son of thunder, and now he's the apostle of love in his 90s, totally changed by the love of Jesus. I, I wanna pause here for just a second. This is the story of Christianity, Right? It's free love. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything to deserve it. But it is also disruptive. And it will change you. And it will turn you into a different person. And, and all the things that you used to love, you won't love them anymore. And all the things that you used to hate, you'll now start to love because Jesus is gonna change you from the inside out. That's the first truth that John has been hitting over and over. But here's the second one and it's attached to it. Truth number two, God's love, once you experience that type of love, it actually drives us towards joyful obedience to Jesus. Look at 1 John 5 verse three. It says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I love that line, his commandments are not burdensome. He's saying something has happened in your soul to where all of these rules that God used to place on you that used to be burdensome to you, now they're not because he's changing you with his love. Let, let me explain it like this. Um, my kids, I've got a six-year-old, almost a four-year-old, and then a two-month-old. And for my two oldest, bedtime is a burden for them right? And the commands that I have surrounding bedtime. Uh, I, I'm so glad that no one has a video of me trying to put my kids to bed because I've never sinned as horrifically as I sin at bedtime. I, I, am, I am almost ashamed of myself at how angry I get at bedtime. It's, when I say it's bedtime, you would have thought, I, I would have announced, hey, bust out the saws. We're going to saw off all of your arms and legs by the way that my kids respond. It's a burden to them. Uh, TV restrictions for my kids, major burden for them right? Arguments abound when I say, no, we're not going to watch that show because I haven't seen that show. And I don't know what it's about yet. Uh, TV or uh, candy consumption, major arguments. My commands regarding uh, candy consumption are not uh, a joy to follow for my kids. They're a burden. And here's why, because my kids think I'm the enemy of fun, that I'm out to get uh, any sort of joy in their life, that I don't, I don't want them to stay up late and enjoy themselves. I don't want to watch TV and enjoy themselves. I don't want them to eat candy and be happy. I'm kind of the, the, the joy killer in my house in that way because I've got some rules around. No, we're not going to stay up all night. We're not going to watch whatever you want to watch. And you can't eat candy all day because I want you to live past six years old, right? So now think about a fish in the water. 
A fish has the, the, the rule of not being able to get out of the water and survive. That is not a burdensome command for the fish whatsoever. The, the fish is joyfully happy with that restriction of staying in the water. If you were to throw the fish out, fish would freak out because the fish realizes that the restriction of water is a good restriction. It helps me thrive and it helps me flourish. Here's what's happening for Christians. Before Jesus saved you, the commands of God were a burden. God's this killer of fun. He's a fun Nazi. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. He doesn't want you to enjoy sex. He he doesn't want you to enjoy food. He doesn't want you to have fun at all. And then something happens, and Jesus saves you. And all of a sudden, it's like you're born again, this new identity, new life, new heart. And those commands of God are no longer a burden for you to follow. It's now a joy. They're no longer a weight. It's this is how I thrive as a human being in the world. This is how I function. This is how I flourish. The commands about sex, the commands about food, the commands about how to live, how to love, what to do with possessions, the commands about obedience. These are not burdensome commands for the Christian. These are joyful commands. Give us your rules, God, because your rules are good. That's the heart of a Christian. John's point in this letter is that you don't do anything to earn this love. It's free and it's crazy and it doesn't make any sense. And it comes to you at your worst. But when it comes to you, it will necessarily will change you, even if it takes a long time. It will, from the inside out, transform your behavior. Change the way you see the world. Change the way you engage. So here's what I want to do. My biggest fear is that you would hear these truths that maybe sound basic to you and just blow past it and not carve out any sort of space, any sort of time for you to really process what John is telling us in this book. And so I want to just give you my, my hope I have four hopes. This is like coming out of this book, my four big hopes for you and I as a church. So here's the first one. My hope is that First John would confront your disobedience and my disobedience. That First John would actually confront our disobedience as a church. Let me just say this. One of the biggest takeaways as I've been reading and studying and processing and sitting in this book is that God just cannot stand disobedience among his people. He just can't stand it. In fact, the person in scripture that is the most committed to disobedience is Satan. And the way that you show your allegiance to Jesus, that you're a friend of God's, is by your obedience to Jesus. That's the way that you prove your relationship with him. Listen to all the things that John has been saying and and sit in this heaviness for just a minute. 1 John 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, makes a practice of sin. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. He's confronting disobedience. Look at this, 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. 
1 John 5.18, in this passage that we just read, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. You see what John is doing in this letter is he's not just giving us assurance about the love of God that's free and undeserving. He's also confronting our disobedience as Christians. This isn't new, by the way. Listen to Jesus, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And on and on and on, Jesus said to his followers, you need to sit in that for just a minute. I need to sit in that for just a minute. Jesus is looking at us and he says, this is how you know that you follow me if you actually keep my commandments. Listen to this one. God's desire from the very beginning has been to shape and form a people that are marked by grace, marked by his love, and are so otherly and so different that it actually makes an impact on culture. Look at this, Leviticus 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to my people of Israel and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. From day one, the heart of God has been to love a group of people that don't deserve it, but to love them in such a way that from the inside out, it begins to change them and they look different from the world. Do you sense and feel the way that this is confronting your own disobedience. Some of you in the room, you have secret sin. Stuff in your life that no one else knows. Some of you in the room, you're holding on to a particular addiction or sin and you're unwilling to get help. You're unwilling to bring it to the light. You're holding on to it and you're clenching your fist. I've got it. I can do it on my own. When I get better, that's when I'll confess to other people. Once it's a victory story of how I rescued myself, that's when I'll bring the community in and tell them about my need for Jesus. And what's happening is that this book is actually God's grace to you, and it's confronting your disobedience because something has to shift, something has to change in the lives of the people of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I think you would appreciate hearing this, that when Jesus comes into your life, it's not like he loves you, but not too much to just kind of let you stay in your own way of living, but he does, he changes you. He brings you out, even though it takes a long time and even though it's messy and even though we're still profoundly broken. So that's my first hope is that this book would actually confront our disobedience as a church. Can I just say that if you don't ever have time to process your own disobedience, then you're running at a really unhealthy pace and it's gonna be very difficult for you to be a healthy, integrated Christian that really knows all the ways that you need Jesus and all the ways that you need him to move and work in your life. You gotta slow down, you gotta process, you gotta give yourself permission to schedule time away for just you to have a conversation with Jesus about areas in your soul that don't line up and don't make sense. Here's the second hope that I have for us as a church. I want 1 John to smoke out our hypocrisy for the sake of the mission. First John, I want it to smoke out our hypocrisy for the sake of the mission. It's so hard to be a Christian in Oklahoma, isn't it? It's so hard. You know why? 
Because every time I admit to some non-Christian in our city that I'm a Christian, they immediately write me off and I'm totally irrelevant because they've met other Christians that live hypocritical lives totally disconnected from what God is saying. So already we have our work cut out for us and here's what I'm trying to say. Our words mean very little to our city. It doesn't matter that we're talking about how Frontline wants to be a church for the city and Frontline wants to multiply gospel communities that love God and love people and push back darkness and we can articulate our mission and our vision left and right but if our lives are preaching a different message then it doesn't matter for our city. We have to have this book confront not only our disobedience but smoke out our hypocrisy Philip Yancey, he says, if we don't live in a way that draws others to the faith rather than repels them, then none of our words will matter. Could I just ask a simple question? Do you live in such a way that draws other people to the faith? Or do you live in a way that repels other people? That has to smoke out our hypocrisy. Dallas Willard, he says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, Stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied. Spiritually, uh, wrong, uh, spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. There's so much hypocrisy that we have a real uphill battle, don't we? H- how many of you have been really upset and infuriated at all the sex scandals that have been coming out? just really like devastated and infuriated. I think maybe hopefully all of you would raise your hand. Some of you are like, I'm raising my hand in my heart. That's fine. Um, But I think all of you would would agree like, man, I'm just really devastated and infuriated about all the sex scandals that are coming out. Uh, Listen, I, I, I know that there's a political diversity here that I love. I love that we've got Republicans and Democrats and everything in between and everything on the fringes. I love that this is a politically diverse church and you're welcome here, whatever your political party. Uh, But man, could I just be honest, like uh, several months ago when I heard the audio recording of our president uh, saying things about women and saying the way he treats them, I was just, I was completely appalled, just totally shocked that, that anybody could treat women that way. I think so many of you were that way. As, as we were listening to that, we were just kind of to the core shocked. Like, how are we doing this as a, as a group of people? Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you look at porn in secret? So, like, our hypocrisy is being smoked out in this book because verbally we're saying and posting one thing, but our lives are saying and posting something very different. One of my hopes for us as a church, if we're going to move forward and really be a church for the city, is this book has to change us from the inside out by the grace of God. Do you realize that you can do everything about your holiness, but you can do virtually nothing about the holiness of other people? Right? You can do almost nothing about the holiness of our, of our uh, political figures. You can do virtually nothing about the holiness of celebrities and actors. You can do, but you, you have a lot of freedom to do something about the holiness in your own soul. John Tyson says this. He says, you cannot lament for the culture of America if you do not weep for the culture of your own heart. And this morning in our nine o'clock service when when the confession was happening as we were confessing sin together, I was weeping for the culture of my own heart, right? I can't do anything about what's happening out there, but I can do something about what's happening in here by the grace of God. 
So that's one of my hopes, is that this would confront our disobedience. It would begin to smoke out our hypocrisy for the sake of the mission. Here's the third one, and and this is a little bit of a turn. Man, my hope is that you and I would reject the American dream. My prayer for us, my hope is that we would reject the American dream. Listen, here's what the gospel of the American dream says to you. It says, if you work hard enough, you can, you can achieve success. You can land a good, high-paying job. You can have a comfortable life. All the things that you desire, you can pursue them and acquire them and get them if you work hard enough. Here's what 1 John says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you hear how different the gospel of the American dream is from what John is writing in 1 John to Christians? You cannot have both. You've got to pick. This is radical. This is incredible. This is, this is not what I grew up thinking. But there's a real difference between what it is to be a Christian and what it is to not be. This is how he ends the book, and I love it. It's random. It's like he's, he's saying on the phone, I'll see you in just a minute, but here's a few things before I see you. Blah, 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 and he just spouts out, chapter five is all, the, all these random thoughts, and then he ends with this verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like the one last thing he has to say before he lets you go. I, I, I just want you to keep yourself from idols. Just please, like, just on your way out, just keep yourselves from idols. That's what he's saying. What is an idol? I think sometimes we think of this little graven image that we bow down to or bring food to and make sacrifices to. Tim Keller gives a helpful definition. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. See, what's happening here is that Christianity is not saying we're the ones that worship and everyone else doesn't. No, here's what the claim of Christianity is. Everyone worships. And we are the people that worship Jesus because he has first loved us and he has done something to forgive us and to change us. And so what that means is now these other things that we used to love and we used to worship, we no longer worship. They no longer are the things that we're looking to to have meaning and significance and and, and to, to be okay. It's Jesus. And John, he ends his letter with, keep yourselves from idols. Man, if, if we could grab a hold of that as a church, this would change the way that we live. This would change us. Here's the fourth and final hope that I have, is that you and I would step into radical, sacrificial action for the good of others in this room and in our city. That we wouldn't just be people that talk about love verbally, but we would be people that are loving towards other people. And that would manifest itself in sacrificial action for the good of other people in this room and in our city. Listen to 1 John again in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone, listen to this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Man, can you imagine if a hundred if people in our congregation could get a glimpse, could get a grid for what it means to see possessions and money and cars and homes and stuff as not primarily being about us, for us, uh, and, and to be terminated on us. But could you imagine if a hundred of us started to see the stuff that we have as beautiful gifts from God to be, to be used as a blessing and for the good of other people? Can you imagine if all of a sudden your money was no longer your money, it was God's money, and you could do with it whatever he wanted you to do with it? Could you imagine if your home, it wasn't your home, it was the home that Jesus bought you, and you get to use, and you're able to now use your home for the glory of God? Could you imagine if you started to see your possessions that way? If 100 people in this room could get a glimpse of that, it would change the culture of this church. It would probably change the culture of our city. This is a big deal. This is one of my hopes. And it's already happening. I'm celebrating it. Like we've seen people in this room give cars to other people that need it. This was so crazy. I got a text from one of our community group leaders. You've heard some of this story already. It was a little picture of a six-year-old boy And the text said, hey, could you send this to other people in the church to see if anyone wants to adopt this little boy? And I kind of chuckled when I got it. Like, yeah, no big deal. I'll just text that out and see if anybody wants to adopt a child. And I did. I sent it to our community group leaders. I had three people respond. We would adopt them. We'll take them. How do you explain that except the radical love of God changing us from the inside out? Can you imagine if more stories like that started to come out where adoption was something that we did and fostering was something that we did and and we didn't just say, oh, we love you, but it was love in action. Here's what I have. I'm gonna give it away so that you can have what you need. That would be amazing. It's one of the hopes that I have. So let me just wrap all this up like this. We live in a time of anxiety upheaval and extremes, don't we? There's terrorist attacks, deadly hurricanes, mass shootings, alt-right rallies, racial tensions, political polarization, sex scandals, the breakdown of American evangelicalism. How do we live? This is how we live by grace. People living a life of love because of the radical sacrificial love of Jesus and the way that's affected their life. If you're curious how to go forward in 2017, going into 2018, how to live, how to be salt, how to be light, this is how John is providing us with answers that we need so that we can be the people of God in our city and in our world. This is just your invitation. I don't know how else to end this other than to say, you have things in your life that Jesus is inviting you to drop for the sake of his mission. You have things in your life that Jesus is inviting you to confess You have things in your life that Jesus is confronting in this moment that throughout today, the Spirit of God has been probing and pressing on and pointing and shining light on. Please don't leave today without doing business with God about that. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Man, I just wanna say, I don't know why you've rejected Christianity, but if it's because of any of of these things, you gotta know that what Jesus calls Christianity is very different than what Oklahoma calls Christianity. And so be sure that you're rejecting it for the right reasons and not because people are sometimes really dumb, right? Wrestle with what it really is. So here's what I want to invite you to do. Would you stand with me for just a second? If you and I are going to be people that bring the peaceful, faithful, otherly presence of Jesus to our city, we're going to need the power of the Spirit and the continual outpouring of the love of God. 
today you brought in with you sin. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited, sin and all, to come to the table. This is the bread which represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us on a cross. God has done everything in his son so that the sin in your life will no longer define you, it will no longer hold you, it will no longer be the thing that your life is marked by. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is now marked by his grace and his love. You need to come today hungry, broken, struggling, and receive the love of Jesus for you today. This, this is the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and I so that we could be forgiven. Today, if you feel shame, if you feel far from God, if you feel like you're dirty and unworthy, that is the only way that you could come to the table is empty and asking God to fill you. One of my favorite things as a pastor is watching people line up to take communion because it's like watching a bunch of hungry people waiting for grace. That's what God is inviting you to do today. Come hungry and receive grace. Some of you have business to do with Jesus before you leave. Could you please not leave without doing that? You don't have anywhere to be that's more important than spending time with Jesus and allowing him to confront disobedience in your soul. Allowing him to smoke out hypocrisy. Maybe you've fallen into the trap of just falling in love with the American dream. It's what you live for. It's what your life is marked by. Man, Jesus is giving you a better vision of the good life. And it's not to acquire a bunch of stuff and status and wealth. It's to acquire him and live in his mission for his glory. Maybe today is an invitation that God's giving you to lay that down. Or maybe today you know of someone in our community that's in need and you've been aware of the need and you haven't met the need. Man, today is God's invitation for you to take real sacrificial action, love for the good of another person. Can we just make a commitment as a, as a group of people that by the grace of God, we're gonna stop playing church and stop playing Christianity because there are enough churches and enough Christians in Oklahoma doing that. What Oklahoma really needs is people marked by the radical, free, disruptive love of Jesus. That's what we need. That's how we will be a church for this city. So come hungry, come hurting, come broken, and be filled by the love of God today.